Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to Book 1, Episode 4 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. Our current book is the novelization of the 1989 Batman, written by Craig Shaw Gardner. Today, we're discussing Chapters 9 and 10. Today's episode was recorded at Gigi's house. I was happy to have him join me as a guest co-host again. Uh, somehow, I managed to completely forget to record the introduction, or maybe it was lost somehow, so... I'll record the introduction here, and uh, we'll get started on the episode as it was recorded. As per usual, when Jeej and I get together, our conversation got a little rambly, a little tangenty. So again, I've put the bulk of that at the very end after the outro music, so if you want to listen to that, I'm not sure why you would. It's there for you, and if you don't want to listen to it, you can just skip it. I have a couple pieces of news I'd like to share before we dig in. The first is I received my first bit of listener feedback. Yay! This is from Chris over at the Batman Universe, and he writes, Hello, Lane. I just wanted to congratulate you on your great podcast and tell you that I've really been enjoying it. I hope we haven't heard the last of your audio dramas as well. Thank you so much, Chris. That is very kind. And you can rest assured that Rest in Peace Theater is going to be around for a while. I kind of have a lot of fun doing it, so. <laughs> Chris goes on. With respect to the name Jack Napier for the Joker, I remember back around the time when the movie was out, there was also some speculation that the name was also, in part, derived from the word jackanapes, meaning an impudent or mischievous person. He was even referred to as jackanapes in passing on an episode of the 60s Batman show. That is wonderful information. I thank you so much for that, Chris. Um, I kind of had a, a facepalm moment when you said that. So even though I've heard the word jackanapes before, it was so buried within my subconscious that I never would have uh, retrieved it again for that. In fact, I forgot that I even knew the word jackanapes until you brought it up again. So I love that there are multiple layers now of, you know, you have jack being the playing card, Jack Napier, with Napier being a nod toward Alan Napier, and now Jack Napes. Jack Napier. I wonder if his middle initial is A. Ooh. I just thought of something. Um, if the actor who played Alfred Pennyworth, his name was Alan Napier, so that's A. Napier. So Jack A. Napier. All right, it all comes full circle. Continuing on with Chris's email... I hope you have a lot of material well beyond the current book, and I hope you keep up your show with at least the same frequency if possible. I wonder what you'll cover next, and if you've ever read Chris D's Catwoman fanfic and that whole body of work. As to the available material to cover, thankfully there is quite a number of Batman books out there, both for an older audience and also some uh, ranked for teens and, and young adults. As I mentioned earlier, I chose the novelization of the 1989 Batman first because of its connection and importance to me in getting me into the world of Batman. Uh, from here on out, I'll type all the titles into a random list generator or go old school and throw them in a hat. Uh, probably the only deviation I'll do from this, whenever I do a novelization of the movie, I think I will go in order of when they were released. Um, if there was a 1966 or six, when did the movie come out? Anyway, when the 1960s movie, if there's a novelization about that, 
I've already missed that bus, but we'll come back around to it if it exists. As for uh, keeping up with the same frequency, I will definitely endeavor to do so. I hope not to always be as busy as I am now. When I need to, I'll, you know, just cover one or two episodes. I thought this week's episode would be shorter with covering the two episodes, but I made the mistake of recording with Cheej, and that just uh, brings a lot of craziness. And it's it was a lot of fun. Uh, don't don't get me wrong, I definitely love doing that, but it makes for a lot of editing. <laughs> and listeners, you might hear the wind howling outside. There's an Arctic front uh, blowing through. It was 48 degrees Fahrenheit today, and tomorrow it's supposed to be 21. And on Wednesday, we're looking at a high of 5 degrees, with wind chills in the negative teens. So that'll be fun. And as for um, Chris D's Catwoman fanfic, no, I haven't heard of that. I'll have to track that down and and, uh, give that a perusal when I get a little free time to read. So thanks for the suggestion. And the last little bit of Chris's email... I'm glad you enjoy Stella's podcast. I'm very fortunate to have a small part on it. Best bat wishes, Chris. Chris, again, thank you so much, and best bat wishes to you as well. Uh, Your email definitely made my day. Uh, Listeners, you should check out Chris's podcast over at thebatmanuniverse.net. You've already heard me recommend Batgirl to Oracle, and in uh, more recent episodes, I'm not sure exactly when... Chris hopped on Stella's podcast because I've not gotten that far yet in her podcast, but he has a regular bit on there. You can also find him at Bat Books for Beginners there at the Batman Universe and the Professor Frenzy Show podcast at ProfessorFrenzy.com. Chris was kind enough to send a couple promos my way, and I wanted to plug his stuff in this episode, so we'll hear some of that later on. As a reminder, folks, that if you would like to send any comments or questions, you can reach me at darknightpros at gmail.com or over at Twitter at batmanbooks underscore DKP. Oh, speaking of the batmanuniverse.net, the second bit of news I have for you is that a couple of weeks ago, I received an invitation from the senior editor over there for my podcast to join them. I was completely floored and honored by that, especially since my little show is still so new. I'm not exactly sure when all that will take place, um, but I will make an announcement as to when uh, Batman Books will move over to the new site. I really look forward to joining the likes of Stella and Chris over at the site, and as well as getting to know uh, other Batman Universe podcasters along the way. So I am definitely honored to join that. So without further ado... Let us pick up the recording where Jeeves and I started mid-conversation in three, two, Jack being a playing card and the connection with Alan Napier. It makes you appreciate these tight, well-done movies that throw in all kinds of nice nuances. A teacher I had in film years ago once told me everything, in I mean everything in a film has purpose. Throwing that kind of double meaning into something, I really appreciate Yeah, because when we first talked about it, we were kind of giving it some flat because we're like, where did this come from? But knowing now all the different layers that are added onto it, uh, i got to give props. And speaking of film and coincidence, I once you learn the Chekhov's gun thing, almost nothing surprises you anymore. Have you ever heard of that? 
I've heard of it, but it's not coming. Explain to me and the audience. Okay. <laughs> Chekhov's gun is, I think it's from Antonin Chekhov, uh, not from the young helmsman in Star Trek. <laughs> I automatically thought Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that would be Chekhov's phaser. But, <laughs> but Chekhov's gun is, like Chekhov said, that if you introduce a gun in the first act, it has to be used by the third act. So whenever you see a film or TV show or something where the camera happens to linger slightly longer on a pair of scissors or something, you can sit back and say, okay, those scissors are going to come into the plot somehow later on. Do you want to plug where the listeners can find you on the interwebs? Yeah. So um, I actually host a YouTube channel um, that's music-based, so I don't know how many of you uh, Gothamites out there are actually going to be into this, Um, but it's called The Midnight Chamber. And it covers at present, I would say just the US, but it's, it's just the horror punk community in general. I am branching out and doing other things within that. And it's kind of going to be a catch all channel. Um, but right now it is heavily music based, uh, specifically horror punk because, uh, but no one was covering that. So I just decided to, uh, something that I've been part of for. If I want to date myself, I have almost 20 years. I've been part of that scene. Um, but so that you can find me on YouTube at the Midnight Chamber. All right. So chapter nine, scene one. And now it's on the spot action news with your co-anchors, Becky Narita and Peter McElroy. The camera focused on Becky. She smiled. Good evening, she began. The fashion world was stunned today by the sudden deaths of models Candy Walker and Amanda Keeler. Cause of death has been attributed to a violent allergic reaction, although authorities have not ruled out the possibility of drug use. Peter? Peter announces that the city's 200th birthday will continue, and there will be an unveiling of a statue of John T. Gotham, Gotham's founder. Someone off camera slips a note to Peter. He reads it, and his smile fades. Quote, this just in. Three mysterious deaths at a beauty parlor in, unquote. It's at this point that Peter's co-anchor, Becky, begins to laugh uncontrollably. It soon becomes clear that something is very, very wrong as she begins to writhe and convulse in her seat. At last, the laughing and convulsing stops, because Becky is dead. The news station cuts its feed. But a TV signal, orchestrated by the Joker, overrides the news station's feed. The video shows cardboard cutouts of Candy and Amanda before their deaths. The models' mouths move in animation and Betty Boop voices. Love that Joker! The scene shifts to a supermarket where the Joker grabs a package from the shelves and holds it up for the camera. Quote, New improved Joker brand! Unquote. It cuts to a blind taste test where a tied, gagged, and blindfolded man struggles in a chair. We get the disclaimer that he is not an actor. The Joker says, quote, Oh, he's not happy. He's been using Brand X. But with this new improved Joker brand, I get a grin again and again. Unquote. The camera pulls back to show a second blindfolded man, this one a corpse with an unnatural smile on his face. The Strange commercial shows dozens of delivery trucks, and Joker tells the audience that chances are they have already bought some of the items with the special formula Smilex. Joker tells the audience to remember to put on a happy face. Joker cuts the transmission, basking in the splendor of his work. Let's see Batman top this. 
So that's the end of the scene. You know something I've noticed? That Wednesday is Spellbeard? Possibly. <laughs> uh, with the the dramatizations of the Joker, rarely do we get a Joker in film that has been around a while. Like, nine times out of ten, it's always no one knows who this psycho is. Because the Joker, like, say the Joker had been around for four or five years in Gotham. I'm not sure this scene, like the, the packed in commercial on TV and any of this would have gone down quite the same way because someone would have been like, hmm, these are, this smells like Joker shenanigans. Yeah. Well, he was so, so newly created in the Axis chemical plant. Um, he's starting to get his, his name around, but I think a lot of people still don't really know who he is. My notes. Here is another part of the movie I'd completely forgotten about. And as I read this, I just, I, the memory of it came back. Remember the two models? Laying on the floor. Well, they have like cardboard cutouts and they're just, they have a smile. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That, those Joker grins really creep me out. I can't remember them from the movie so much, uh, but I've seen them in some of the comics and the Arkham games when they've been poisoned and they're just like pulled back and they're really creepy. Mm-hmm. And it's not as bad uh, creep scale wise as when in horror movies, people kind of do that jerky move and that unnatural moving that really creeps me out. Um, or if their, their body is still, but their head is just, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's creepy. Uh, but yeah. It's okay, Becky. I sometimes struggle with laughing at inappropriate times, too. I think it's a nervous thing. So. <laughs> um, oh, there's a little bit about, uh, what's this website? A little bit on batmananthology.wikia.com regarding the unveiling of the statue of John T. Gotham. Oh, really? So this deep dives into the comics a little bit? I've heard other Arkham founder family names, but I didn't remember John T. Gotham. So I did a little Googling, and from what I can find, it, it he only shows up in this movie. Um, so apparently in the movie, when they unveiled the, st- the statue, it was supposed to have been replaced by a huge statue of the Joker. So there actually was a statue of Jack Nicholson made. Really? Yes. Ooh, outtakes. (laughs) But yeah, the scene dropped in rewrites and was never shot. And the statue was later painted and is currently on display at Planet Hollywood in New York. That's cool. Yeah. Note to self, whenever I go to New York, that's going to be on my my sightseeing list. I'd say so. But I I, I do like how it it explains uh, the transition from, you know, the just the, the slight giggles and then straight into like the... You know, laughing yourself to death. Yeah. <laughs> with the, the big smile. So as I mentioned, I'd not heard of John T. Gotham before, so I did a little digging into some of the names that have popped up. So the founders of Gotham City in Swamp Thing number 53. Ooh, that's, that's another DC character. <laughs> I absolutely adore yeah. Swamp Thing. Alan Moore wrote a fictional history for Gotham City that other writers have followed. According to Moore's tale or nor. Norwegian mercenary, Captain John Logerquist, I hope I pronounced that almost close, founded Gotham City in 1635 and the British took it over, a story that parallels the founding of New York by the Dutch as New Amsterdam and later taken over by the British. And that, of course, would make Gotham a good deal older than the 200 years that is depicted in this movie. In the 2011 comic book series, 
Batman Gates of Gotham, details a history of Gotham City in which Alan Wayne, Theodore Cobblepot, and Edward Elliot, ancestors of Bruce Wayne, Oswald Cobblepot, and Thomas Elliot, are considered the founding fathers of Gotham. The time of this is more around the late 1800s, making its beginning more recent than the 200 years depicted in this book. Let's see. uh, As with many DC and Marvel-related stories, there are a number of origin stories. John T. Gotham didn't show up on a very cursory look, but perhaps it was pulled from an archive somewhere. Chapter 9, Scene 2. Bruce Wayne turned off his television. The Joker's transmission was over. Snow once again filled the screen. It was exactly what he thought was happening. Now he simply had to find the quickest countermeasure. Alfred enters the room to give him a piece of paper to add to the file. Bruce reads, quote, Assault with a deadly weapon, age 15. <sighs> nice guy. Psychological testing, high intelligence, unstable. Aptitudes in science, especially chemistry, and art. Chemistry, unquote. He flips to a photo of Jack Napier, then says to his butler, quote, Let's go shopping, Alfred, unquote. You know, I... I like it better and not knowing the Joker's origins. I like I like it better when it's the Joker telling people absurd stories on where he came from and you just never know and he's more like this just pinnacle of chaos. Was it the Nolan films where every time I believe it he, was. He, every time he tells his origin story it's different. Yeah. I I really like that. I which I know the comics have expanded on his actual especially the, the killing joke pretty much tells his origins but i i kind of prefer it him being as i said it before an enigma but not edward enigma <laughs> i i mentioned this on uh, a couple episodes ago but there's a podcast called the arkham sessions and it's co-hosted uh, one of the co-hosts is a psychotherapist or a clinical psychologist i can't remember which but she's actually written into the canon of Batman as Barbara Gordon's therapist because she helped Gail Simone with some of the research. So they go through the animated Batman and do um, psychological input on the characters, and it's fascinating. <laughs> How do you like that for nerd cred? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the very first episode is, um, I think, Man Bat. I think Man Bat was in the first episode, and yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh. I, I kind of made a note of the quote, it was exactly what he thought was happening, unquote. So Bruce thought that the Joker was poisoning the city with Smilex being distributed through supermarket items. I know he's the world's greatest detective, but... This movie made him out to be practically, like, clairvoyant. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I've never before imagined Bruce or Alfred in a supermarket, but now I can't <laughs> unsee it. Imagine Bruce facing the injustice of someone having 16 items in the 15 items or less lane. (laughs) What does Bruce Wayne do when he comes up against the Salvation Army bell ringer? (laughs) All right. Chapter 9, Scene 3. Panic grips Gotham, the Globe headline read. Contaminated products claim 13 lives. Who is the mysterious Joker? An anchorwoman, looking haggard reports six new deaths with no clues as to the type of toxin being used. The camera shifted to an anchorman, one with a zit on his nose. 
and he tells us that beauty and hygiene products, cologne, mouthwash, and underarm deodorant are some of the items that are tainted. As the Joker watches the television, he claps his hands in glee. Every day was getting better and better. So at first, when I read that the anchor woman was haggard, I thought, you know, she was affected by the death of the other anchor and the worry. But I'm like, oh, no, she's just not wearing makeup or anything. And he, the guy's not washing his face because he's got the zit on his nose. So they're I'm like, oh, they're avoiding these products. So smart thinking. <laughs> Be like my mother and just keep 85 tons of back stock in. So you never have to go to the grocery for for hygiene products, except maybe once a year. There you go. Or drive out of town and get to, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drive to Metropolis. <laughs> hey, Superman! Milk run! <laughs> uh. Bruce, this is the Justice League, not a delivery service. <laughs> We're crossing our nerd streams. <laughs> but, but the Flash, it won't take him but a second. <laughs> uh. All right. Chapter 9, Scene 4. Gordon couldn't believe the mayor had called him in here. Gotham City was under siege. Harvey Dent was still on the phone. The mayor started talking anyway. We're having this festival if I have to carry a shotgun and get people there myself. The moment Dent is off the phone, the mayor shouts at him to find out what the Joker is poisoning them with and find it out fast. Dent looks over at Gordon with an, If you don't kill him, I will, look, and replies, We're working on it. It's really hard to uh, listen to any Harvey Dent pre-him losing his complete mind. <laughs> yeah. I made a note of, um, Mayor Borg, don't get on Dent's bad side. <laughs> yeah? So this mayor is obviously more concerned with this festival than with the safety of Gotham citizens. So not exactly a good leader. He's written to be a, uh, let's be real, a stereotypical politician mm -hmm. where him getting elected is more important, you know, especially in times of uh, election than actually doing what needs to be done. Yeah. Did a little digging on Mayor Borg. Wikipedia has a long list of Gotham's mayors, both the named and the unnamed ones. So if they would have one with a name, they'd say, okay, the next one's not named, next one's not named. But Borg seems to exist only in the 1989 Batman movie, and other websites kind of uh, cooperate that. And the character is portrayed by Lee Wallace. Chapter 9, Scene 5 Bruce Wayne wandered into his personal armory. Alfred looked up from where he was oiling a blowgun. Oh, sir, did you see the message from Miss Vale? The butler asked. She'll be ten minutes late in meeting you at the museum. Meeting? Miss Vale? Bruce has forgotten all about his meeting with Vale because for the past 36 hours he's thought of nothing but the crisis in Gotham City. He wonders, was he becoming too obsessed with Napier? But how could you become too obsessed with someone who wanted to kill all of Gotham City? But Bruce also thinks that he needs to live his own life. And he wonders if Alfred happened to know what time he's supposed to meet Vale at the museum. You know, that makes me wonder. They seriously have portrayed him as an emphatical genius at detection and yet misses a phone call like or like skips by that a bit because i mean he's he's so obsessed with the detection thing like everything else just flies to the wayside yeah i mean especially this version of batman where he's like i can't find my socks without alfred 
Uh, speaking of Alfred, Buddy, talk to Bruce about hiring some more staff. You know, how can you possibly juggle Bruce's schedule, be Batman's right-hand man, uh, take phone calls, clean the house, and down to the detail of oiling a blowgun? Not to mention That's everything the else. That's blowgun, thank you very much. <laughs> and, and not to mention a company and chauffeur Bruce to any place he needs to go and serve dinner. Does he cook dinner too? Because I know the Alfred in the TV show Gotham, he cooks dinner. So oh, man, yeah, this, it's, this is it's, a- it's it's bat microwave TVs. Because <laughs> you know those are probably so here's your hungry man. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken nuggets are shaped like little bats. <laughs> Do allow your hot pocket to cool for a minute, sir. <laughs> Uh, the, the thought of the thought of Batman eating a hot pocket <laughs> amuses me to no end. <laughs> Alfred, the inside is still icy. <laughs> well, the bat microwave is on the fritz again. <laughs> uh, so, also, I was hoping for the chance to see Alfred and Bruce trying to blend in at the local Kmart. I'm sad that that shopping trip happened off camera. <laughs> Oh my god. We we just we, we we need a book of just awkward Alfred and Bruce going into doing mundane things. I like Alfred and Bruce. They they uh they go to a big Sandy's to look for like a couch for the bat cave and they run into I don't know, they run into they run into like a minor supervillain. So they run into Selena Kyle without her makeup on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Selena Kyle just trying to show up and I don't know. She's like, like sweatpants and no bra. <laughs> get like a, you just get like a side table for her apartment, like, uh, like just and let it just bleed into awkwardness for She's like, like darn pages. It. Every time I dress up nice, I see no one. But one day I go out like a slob and I run into Bruce freaking Wayne. <laughs> so I'm, I'm quite surprised that Bruce has agreed to meet with Vicky. When there's such a widespread attack going on in Gotham City with no one in sight, I'm guessing that he and Alfred bought some of the tainted items so they could isolate the toxin and work on some sort of antidote, but that should probably require his attention more than a date with Vicky. The date can come later, I'm thinking. I mean, <laughs> I mean, love waits for no man or woman, <laughs> you know? So, it's also interesting that he considers that he still has his own life to lead. I think being Batman in most uh, representations of this character, being Batman is his life. It is his priority. And doing the other things as Bruce Wayne feels like that pulls away from his the life that he wants to lead. Maybe not so much in the 1989 Batman and not so much with Adam West because the Adam West Batman and Bruce Wayne felt like the same person, the same character. Adam West is the man. Yeah. But um, in other representations, it really feels like the persona of Bruce Wayne itself is the true facade. Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne certainly feels like it's it's a big act. And Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne, it's much more understated. And in my opinion, better. But when he is in public, he's a bit more flippant, a bit more shallow. And the moment that the public's eyes are off of him, the smile slips from his face and he gets back to business. So I'm getting, I'm looking forward to getting reacquainted with Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne and Batman. 
I did like uh I think he's my second favorite Batman. Which one? <clears throat> Michael Keaton's. Mm-hmm. Who's your first? <sighs> Batfleck. Yeah, he's really good. He is. And but it's only be, like I really really and uh, I love Val Kilmer's Batman. Yeah. But I I think that's just because I absolutely adore Val Kilmer as an actor. Yeah, I'm I mean, Huckleberry. Adore him. Yeah. Um as a human being in general, Val Kilmer's amazing. I love you, Val. <laughs> <laughs> um but Batfleck, I think he uh, Ben Affleck found the balance. Yeah. He he, fa- he found just the right balance. And unfortunately, he jumped in where the DC universe doesn't know what the hell to do with anything and all of the toxic fans out there are blaming it on him and like giving him flack which he does not deserve any of the big fandoms yeah there's toxic yeah there are some toxic elements to anything like that but uh, christian bale's batman is all right but i i don't like what what um and i know a lot of people like let's be the the dark knight is a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. As a whole, though, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, I don't like what they did with the universe. Yeah. I like my comics to feel a little more comic booky. Yeah. Um, it felt a little too, cause it, the Batman universe is very oddly, it's colorful, you know, coming from a noir gothic kind of setting. The villains are colorful. Batman, to a certain extent, is colorful. Do you know what his first Batmobile was in 1939? No. It was a red convertible. Really? Yes. Well, that's interesting. I'll let you borrow my... I have uh, the reprints of uh, some of the early Batman stuff. Anyway, sorry. Pulp Adventure is some of my favorite on the planet. I love it. Um, Anyway, yeah, Christian Bale just... his Batman was all right, but just the, who, the the writing of those scripts doesn't do it for him, especially The Dark Knight Rises. Like, the way they portrayed Robin was – I was not a fan. What's, what's – when was he? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, was the, he was the young cop. Oh, yeah. That – Whose name is Robin. What? Yeah, I, I didn't like the – there was a lot of – Things within all three of those movies I did not like. The first one was fine because of the, like, Ra's al Ghul, he's a ninja that needs to blend in with society. That worked well. Mm -hmm. But when you start getting into some of the other characters, like Bane and the Joker. Bane's voice. Oh, that just pulled me out of it. There's a lot of things that pulled me out of all three of those movies. Um, I like my Batman. Granted, any of us who grew up on 66 Batman... I'm not that old, but TBS, I believe it was either TBS or TNT, it was TNT back in the 80s, had reruns of Batman 66, and that like that was what I used to watch all the time. Yeah, me too. Every day after school, they'd have, because their episodes came in pairs. Yeah. So. Chapter 9, Scene 6. Oh, he was a clever joker. He'd already rinsed his hair in a very attractive shade of black. Now he had to cover his white skin with that flesh-toned makeup again. There was no use frightening Vicky Vale too quickly, especially after all the trouble he'd gone to. First, impersonating Bruce Wayne's butler to make the date with the lovely Miss Vale, then getting Alicia, after he'd sobered her up a bit, to call that self-same butler to impersonate Vicky and make the date on the other end. It probably wasn't necessary to have invited Wayne, but the tidiness of it all appealed to the Joker. 
After all, why not kill that millionaire playboy now and get the competition out of the way? Joker regards himself in the mirror. It was a lot of trouble changing his appearance, but one must look one's best for on a first date. Alicia, voice slurred, asks Jack where he's going. Her voice comes from behind the white porcelain mask she always wears nowadays. Joker places a flower in his lapel and tells Alicia that he is going to the Flugelheim Museum. Quote, Daddy's going to make some art. Unquote. With some effort, he pulls himself away from the mirror in order to get to meet Miss Vale. I'd forgotten about that porcelain mask and it. The plain white porcelain masks are another thing that kind of creeped me out. So do you remember her wearing I that? I do remember that. Um, I don't. <coughs> I don't feel the Joker would have actually done this. Mm-hmm. I feel like he would have had he would have had one of his insane henchmen be there, and then him make a grand, odd, violent entrance. Oh, just he'll he'll still make that entrance. Oh, he does. Yeah. He <laughs> does for sure. But I, I feel I feel like it, it, the actual like the the comic book land Joker would have done things slightly different than mm-hmm. this. They did this so Jack Nicholson could be Jack, but not Jack. Yeah, because they still had to do that, the smile on his face. Mm-hmm. They still had to do a good amount of makeup. Um, Which, the, like, this scene, like, especially uh, when we get to, I don't know if this is another scene, um, but the the when Vicky Vale splashes the water in his face, yeah, uh-huh. it's iconic. Yeah. I mean... Let's. It is seriously an iconic scene. Yeah. Um. So as I just put that, Alicia, you're a flat character, and you do nothing but go shopping and get wasted. But you deserve better than this. That's like half of society today. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Alicia. All right. So that. Do you have anything to add on chapter nine before we take a promo break? Um. I don't. Uh. It was a good chapter, but oh man, it leads into a, the next chapter is easily one of my favorites in the whole book. Yeah, we're really getting into the meat and potatoes of the story now. Yep. All right, so that wraps up chapter nine. We'll take a promo break, and because I'm doing only two chapters, we'll just have the one promo break. And when we come back, we'll start chapter 10. Hi, this is Batman. Whenever I lose my memory... I head over to the BatmanUniverse.net and check out the podcast, Bat Books for Beginners. The Bat Books for Beginners podcast breaks down and analyzes all of my adventures so I can remember how to get to the Batcave, which Robin I'm working with, and where I parked the Batmobile. Chris and Jerry, the hosts of Bat Books for Beginners, are honest about how well I'm serving the citizens of Gotham. Sometimes too honest, I'll have to talk to them about that. If you wake up one morning and think you might be Batman and have just lost your memories, go over to the BatmanUniverse.net or iTunes and check out Bat Books for Beginners. Now, if I could just figure out who this old man cleaning the Batcave is, that would be great. I asked my friend Scott Snyder and he didn't know. Don't be a supervillain. Visit the BatmanUniverse.net and listen to Bat Books for Beginners, also on iTunes. You'll be glad you did. Bat Books for Beginners is part of the BatmanUniverse.net Bat Family of Podcasts. Don't listen to Bat Books for Beginners when operating heavy machinery or juggling. If you listen to Bat Books for Beginners for more than four hours, call your doctor. Bat Books for Beginners is part of a balanced diet. Thank you. 
the stuff we review A little old, a lot of new Come and join in all the fun Help clean up when we're done Come party with the professor Come party with the professor Professor Frenzy Show Professor Frenzy Show Professor Frenzy Show the Professor Frenzy Show. If you like indie comics and also like podcasts, please try The Professor Frenzy Show. Find the show in iTunes Search and Facebook. Episodes tweeted out on at Professor Frenzy on Twitter. Thank you. Welcome back, folks. So without further ado, let us dive into Chapter 10, Scene 1. Vicky glanced at her watch. She'd been waiting here for 20 minutes, and she was getting angrier with every extra minute that passed. How could she confront Bruce Wayne if Bruce refused to appear? Why was Bruce Wayne so important to her all of a sudden? They had had only that one night together, and they hadn't made any commitments at all. Except for the one that might be in her head. But Vale doesn't know what to think anymore. The other day, the two models had died right in front of her eyes. It was like Cordo Maltese all over again. She's having a gin and tonic on the cafe's little balcony that overlooks the interior of the Flugelheim. The museum adds a surreal quality, quote, like a bright, polite coat of paint on the oil-soaked, half-broken machine that was Gotham City, unquote. She figures that her experience in war zones makes it impossible to truly trust peace, and this feeling of being trapped makes her feel all the more that she needs to talk to Bruce about everything. A couple of more minutes pass, and Vale wonders if perhaps Alfred has set up this meeting in an attempt at matchmaking. She makes up her mind to wait only one more minute. It's at this moment a waiter approaches with a package. Quote, it was a small parcel, wrapped in brown paper, with three words written on it in crown. Her name, and a large, red, urgent. Unquote. Inside was a small white box, with another message, also written in crown. Dear V. Vale, put this on. Right now. She opens the box to find a small red and green item that looks like a small gas mask. At that moment, a strange hissing sound draws her attention to the vents, where strange purple smoke begins to billow into the room. Vale puts on the mask as people around her begin to collapse. Soon, she is the only one still upright. A hundred people lay around her, and what she hopes is only unconsciousness. The far door of the museum slams open. This is the Joker. Yes. Like, the, the, the setting and the, what is about to all go down, this is the Joker. Yeah, because he considers himself an artiste. Uh, I like the Flugelheim Museum. I'm sure that's uh, like the Guggenheim. Mm-hmm. But like I mentioned when I was sick, I had a lot of Flugelheim in my <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um I'm glad to get back to a little bit of the old Vicky Vale. I don't know if you listened to my last episode, but I was kind of complaining about how every waking moment she was just thinking about, Bruce Wayne, who are you? But now she's her her thoughts are wandering. She's kind of going back to her experience in Corto Maltese. So she's kind of rounding out a little bit more as a character again. Yet so. again, it's uh, movie writers taking liberties on, you know, long-running comic characters. Mm-hmm. All right, so chapter six. Oh, also, I wanted to add, um, I also hope that those people are only unconscious 
And if Vicky wants to keep them alive, she'd better make sure no one is drowning in their soup. I feel like it's the like if it's proper Joker, that was like cyanide gas yeah. or something. Like he he would have killed them. Yeah. PG thirteen movie. Probably they were just knocked out, but I think comic book Joker probably would have killed everybody. Yeah. Well, like those models were killed, and like they were talking about the dead soldiers with That's that true. with the nerve gas. So it's very possible that they. It was some of that gas that he likes to use. Chapter 10, Scene 2 A couple of the boys used a little plastic explosive to rip the delivery doors of the museum off their hinges. Sure, it was visiting time and they could have just walked right in, but where was the drama in that? The Joker, sporting an artist beret, leads his boys into the museum. They carry champagne and glasses, and Steve Arino has the huge ghetto blaster boombox. It's party time. Joker walks to the nearest wall to examine the artwork. He says, quote, Okay, everybody, let's broaden our minds. Unquote. All the boys stand in front of paintings of their own. Quote, ah, here was a painting the Joker recognized. Blue Boy by Gainsborough. A beautiful, full-length portrait of a young man dressed in blue. What lines. What a sense of color. It was almost perfect. Unquote. Joker extends a blade from the tip of his cane and carves a huge smile on the blue boy's face. Much better. His boys work on Manets and Renoirs and Degas. Joker finds The Scream by Edvard Munch, quote, a black and white figure screaming with pain and anguish and madness, a creature both pitiful and terrifying in its intensity as if it contained all the pain and anguish and madness in the world, unquote. Out of the corner of his eye, Joker sees Bob about to slice into the scream, but Joker tells him to leave that one alone. He likes it. Bob nods, then moves on to spray paint a Jackson Pollock. While the gang has their fun, the Joker's thoughts turn to his date, waiting for him in the cafe upstairs. This is the Joker. Yeah. This is the Joker walking in and not giving two flying craps at all about art that he doesn't feel is artistic mm-hmm. and he can enhance it. And he doesn't care if it's a Monet or a Renoir. He's going to enhance it. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't care. And that is so the Joker in my mind's eye. Yeah. I love it. I yeah. absolutely adore it. Boom boxes. I love boomboxes. I know. Like, trust me, I love being able to have like a near endless catalog of audio on like my phone and hold it in my pocket. But there's something about the image of toting around a 20 pound box on one's shoulder to listen to a cassette with, well, like an hour and a half worth of music on it. Not even that. <laughs> so I never carried around these things and I never saw one of the huge ones in person. But back in the day, I definitely saw people with smaller ones. Because I'm an art history buff. Let's talk a moment about the two paintings mentioned here, Blue Boy and The Scream. Okay. I can see the connection of the figure in The Scream to the Joker, but what of Batman and the Blue Boy? And I'm sure any symbolism I put out here is just my own mind reaching, but I kind of had fun with it. That's art in general. Yeah. Art is... Interpretation. Interpretation in the (laughs) eye of the beholder. Right. So, Blue Boy, or The Blue Boy, was painted in 1779 by Thomas Gainsborough and is at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. I guess the Flugelheim lost their rights to it after this incident. (laughs) Um, Hopefully, it got patched up okay and sent off to safer hands. 
Anyway, it's regarded to be Gainsborough's, Gainsborough's most famous work, is near life-size, and is thought to be a portrait of Jonathan Buttle, the son of a wealthy hardware merchant, although this has never been proven. So, the connection with Bruce Wayne, uh, he's wealthy, his true identity isn't known, and he's blue. <laughs> Melancholy. Well, no, not eh. in some portrayals of Batman, his outfit it's is blue. blue. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> but even that, when that's it's- a stretch, but it's there. <laughs> yeah, hey, even if it was black, he's still blue. He's he's a sad boy. Anyway, um The Scream is the popular name given to a composition created by Norwegian expressionist artist Edvard Munch in 1893. The German title translates to The Scream of Nature. And the Norwegian title translates to Shriek. Uh, let's see, where was I? Um, Munch recalled that he had been out for a walk at sunset when suddenly the setting sunlight turned the clouds a blood red. Scholars have located the spot to a fjord overlooking Oslo and have suggested other explanations for the unnaturally orange sky, ranging from the effects of a volcanic eruption to a psychological reaction by Munch to his sister's commitment at a nearby lunatic asylum. But he's also an expressionist, so he's going to play with collars. Oh, yeah. Uh, Munch created four versions in paint and pastels, as well as a lithograph stone from which several prints survive. Both of the painted versions have been stolen, but since recovered. So the connection with Joker, crazy collars, changing origin stories, and the connection with insanity and crime. Like I said, a proper script ha- and everything has meaning, no matter how small. Mm-hmm. I might be just making connections there that are I, just... Uh, I don't think so, because the whole Napier mm-hmm, name, right. th- that has deeper meaning like than we the, even thought. Yeah, like the scream, I can definitely see why, you know, because the Joker saves that one because he likes it. There's a definite connection there, an intentional connection. I'm not sure if the connection with Blue Boy is intentional with Batman. I think that one might be a little bit of a reach. But, hey, if it's intentional, well done. We'd have to ask the the, uh, the writer. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter 10, Scene 3. Vicky could feel the trap close around her. The Joker and a dozen of his men had burst into the museum and set about methodically destroying the paintings. Vicky wondered if there was some way she could run for it, but... Within seconds of their arrival, henchmen were covering both main doors and all of the emergency exits as well. The Joker waves pleasantly at her as he approaches, and his cheerful mood unsettles Vale. He sits at the table and tells her it's safe to remove the mask. With a snap of his fingers, two of his thugs set up some candles, and the other produces a huge boombox. Joker changes the music to something a bit more romantic. He pulls a lighter from his inner pocket and uses its foot-long flame to light the candles. What can make this even more romantic? Why, a trip to Rest in Peace Theater. Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present the time that the Joker looked at Vicky Vale's photographs. You're... Beautiful. Thank you. In an old-fashioned sort of way. I'm sure we can make you more... today. This your portfolio? Yeah, I'm meeting a friend who I wanted to see my work. Crap. Crap. Crap, crap, crap. Ah. Now, here's good work. The skulls, bodies, you give it all such a glow. I don't know if it's art, but I like it. 
Joker tells Vale that he's the world's first fully functioning homicidal artist and that he wants his face to be on the $1 bill. He's not joking. He tells Vale that he wants her at his side, photographing his work. Joker asks Bob to bring in Alicia. Alicia, unsteady on her feet and still wearing the porcelain mask, speaks in a slow and unsteady voice. Though afraid of the answer, Vale has to ask, why is she wearing a mask? Alicia removes her mask. Quote, the left side was perfectly normal, a model's face. But the right side, skin melted into muscle, which in turn eroded away to scar tissue and to bone. Unquote. Alarmed, Vale lurches from her seat, but manages to keep her calm enough to tell Joker that she thinks his work is great, but she still isn't sure what she can do for him. Joker informs her that he wants information on Batman. Vale says that she doesn't really know anything about Batman, and accuses Joker of being insane. After a brief blow-up, Joker suggests that they make up, and he walks around the table, holding out his large purple boutonniere. Just in time, Vale realizes the danger, and jumps out of the way just as a jet of acid sprays from the flower. A pillar smokes and sizzles where the clear liquid has touched. Vale continues backing away, and bumps into a waiter's cart. She grabs the pitcher of water and throws it at the Joker. The pitcher itself misses, but water splashes his face. Joker shrieks, No! No! His hands covering his face. The makeup runs from his face, revealing the white skin beneath. I'm melting! I'm melting! And he falls to the floor. Unable to help herself, Vale steps forward to see if she has really hurt him. Boo! He was on top of her. She couldn't get away. All she could see was the purple flower and that big, big grin. Something shattered overhead. Her face, I don't think it was this severe in the movie, but the fact that it goes down to the bone, that's just even more I hideous. I think it is that severe in the movie. I, I don't quite remember it because obviously I don't know if they quite had the prosthetics back. I mean, outside of Tom Savini doing extreme horror makeup but even then you had animatronics but they weren't going to do that for this particular film yeah they might have done some scar I, I, I just remember her face being really messed up in the movie yeah i'm also curious why joker thinks that vicky can give him information on batman because as far as we know she hasn't clapped eyes on him she's just researching him and i feel like if joker wants information on batman the better person to ask would be ali knox because he's interviewing people, he's writing the stories, he's out, you know, boots on the ground trying to find out. I mean, it'd be probably less pleasant to kiss him, but... <laughs> so there's a, a good chance that there was a, an outtake scene, or it could just be a plot hole. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it could be one of those where, you know, somebody told Joker that Vicky Vale was seen uh, to be studying the Batman thing, and... He wanted to know what she she had. At first, Joker uh, sent Bob to follow Knox to get information on Batman. And then he, like, throughout that surveillance, he learned about Vicky Vale. And that was when the Joker kind of fixated on her. So I think he originally did send Bob after Ali Knox, but then was just kind of overcome by Vicky Vale's beauty. Well, he, he likes hot blondes. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe Alicia is also... A hot blonde. Yeah. And Kim Basinger is really pretty. She is. <laughs> Vicky, as much as I respect her intelligence, 
rather than using Joker's theatrics as a chance to get away, she goes to check on him instead. But all of his goons at the doors, you know, she didn't have a chance to get away. But anyway, I do like that it's her keen eye that saves her just in time, kind of like uh, back when she noticed Alfred's tray tipping and she stepped in in time to save that. So her noticing that the flower is plastic and he's he's acting a little weird, uh, that gets her to duck away before uh, she gets shot in the face with acid. I, I think you're right. It was kind of unrealistic for her to check on him to see if he was actually hurt, especially after he, for all she knows, killed everyone else in the restaurant. Right. Or the museum. <laughs> Vicky has obviously been in... You know, she's been a war correspondent. Yeah. She's not going to check on a guy who th- – she – so that that little bit is very unrealistic. Right. I, I agree because I think she is enough of a survivor that she would fight a little dirtier than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh well. I mean, come on. She fought dirty with Knox verbally. Yeah. I, I would not be afraid to fight dirty and I think that is um, where they kind of pulled back on Vicky a little bit and didn't allow her to fight dirty. Because in here, I, I, so I think in the movie, she just throws the water on him. But here, she's throwing the pitcher and everything at him. That's true. Yeah, I think it was just a cup of water in the uh, – because she, she had a drink in her hand. Yeah. And I think she just chucks that at Jack Nicholson's face. Right. For here, she's like – she's got the, the waiter's pitcher and she chucks the whole thing at him. Um, So she's not shying away from that. Hmm. So – no. And Batman's coming. <sighs> About time. <laughs> Some proper Batman action. Yes. Which, unfortunately, we'll have to wait until next time. Uh. <laughs> so, anything else to add for these two chapters? I Really, I don't. Um, just that this particular scene is... It's a mixed bag because it's very, very Joker. And at the same time, there are a couple things that I feel are very not Joker. Mm-hmm. And Vicky is rounding out a bit more as a character, but then they do something like her checking on him when it's really it's a mixed bag where you get you get Vicky checking on him, which she really realistically would not have done. Mm -hmm. And then you get I I still feel that Joker putting on the makeup and whatnot is very much not him. Yeah, I feel I feel like the, the like you said, the white skin and the green hair is he would find that like. The pinnacle, and he would be more apt to th- put one of his goons in there and then make his grand entrance from the side or the top or, you know, like come popping through a painting or something yeah. like that. I mean, at least they blew the doors off the hinges, even though it was open. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. That's true. Um, so it was a mixed bag. I mean, it was very yeah. Joker and very not Joker. It's definitely amping up. It, it is definitely amping up. Yeah. That's it for chapter nine and ten. Next time, we'll cover chapters 11 and 12. As always, thank you for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. I've been your host, Lane, and with me earlier was Jeej. Remember, you can send comments and questions to darknightpros at gmail.com or over at Twitter at batmanbooks underscore DKP. Until next time, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger.
Recipes Theater is proud to present hibernation cold this week yeah i need to see when that rolls in because i'm driving up to columbus tonight for a deaf night out so i don't want to get stranded up there if there's gonna be freezing rain or anything it is supposed to rain hmm okay i'll check the weather <laughs> well yeah okay to be fair i haven't checked the weather in a couple days mm-hmm. but last i did check it was 70 percent chance of rain tomorrow and then whatever it's looking like the movie legend outside with fluttering snow <laughs> Double, double, toil and turn. Wait, that's Macbeth. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) You're a forest child and you don't remember the gump? Do you know the guy who played uh, Gump? He he was a Norwegian actor. And you remember how small he was, right? Mm -hmm. He was 19 years old. And after they finished... He was 19? He was 19. You're joking. I thought... (laughs) Wow. And then when they finished recording, he finally hit a big growth spurt. (laughs) So, and then they... I think they dubbed over his actual voice, but if you see... If you look at his eyes, they're not, like, child's eyes. They're a little bit older, so... I love that movie. It's so good. And I think it doesn't suffer from Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise. Because it was his first actual movie. He wasn't quite a... Tom he w- Cruise yet. Yeah, he wasn't. One hour later. That's anyway. such a pretty movie. <laughs> the unicorns and the soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Who names their child Otto? German people. Oh, well, fair point. <laughs> Which is funny because I'm like, I am a big horror movie watcher, but I don't like horror books. And, mm-hmm. um,. Like I'm actually more of a sci-fi guy. <laughs> uh, it depends on my mood. I'll be, I'll bounce around. There are some horror books that they, I just don't get into, and other ones I'm like I have to finish reading this. Otherwise, it's the I'll author. Sleep. You know what? To bounce this all back to Batman, um, I think it's it's mystery noir mm-hmm. that I actually prefer in a book. So, um, like, gore tends to work better on film although i'm not really a big gore fan when it comes to horror movies which yeah takes me sometimes out. it feels like the gore and jump scares sometimes feel like a cheap way out well i mean the saw movies they're just yeah th- there's i like i like a good plot to mine now if i am going to watch gore it's going to be something completely ridiculous i mean li- peter jackson's dead alive or bad taste two hours later were were you with us when a group of us watched um, High Tension? High Tension, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was with uh, I was with you when we saw that. <laughs> I don't know if I actually liked the movie or we just had so much fun together that. Hey, you know, it wasn't a bad flick. Um, it definitely had some good fun moments, but th- some of those movies are better to watch with people. Yeah, and hey, it's it's hard to behead someone with a dresser, was it? Uh, something like that. But it was interesting. It's like Ghost Ship. Um, not a great movie, but that opening scene. Oh, with the, with, with the, the cable? The, yeah. Yeah. That opening scene is worth the movie alone. It is. It is. It, it's just terrifying because it, it, it cut up at an angle. So it got some people at the calves and some people at the midriff and the lucky ones got hit across the neck and died right away. <sighs> oh yeah. Awful stuff. Anyway. <laughs> So here's a, here's a fun Batman related story before we get started on the book. Um, when I was early teen, uh, seventh grade, I believe, my friend Eli um, had this Batman cassette tape. It was Batman sixty six. You know, it was like Adam West and Burt Ward. And there was I I don't remember what like he probably still has a cassette somewhere, but it had 
it was not music, I don't believe. It was like an audio drama kind of deal. And he had this little cassette player. And one night we were, I was spending the night over at his house, like I did all the time. And he, there's this one line where Burt Ward says, holy hole in the donut, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, Eli just kept playing that, rewinding it, playing it, rewinding. I mean, he did this for like 45 minutes and we were, uh, by 20 minutes in, we're just, I'm like, giggling hysterically like oh my god stop sometimes something just catches you just right for that day like i, I spent a whole day thinking the word purple sounded funny and that's why when a script writer loses it and you, like there are things thrown in that just shouldn't be i mean like i just said star wars episode 8 is a fantastic example of very poor script writing there a lot of the the odd plots in that movie not to go off on a tangent oh you're fine but not to uh there are a lot of points in that movie i do like they just should not have been in that movie mm-hmm. because it was like the the writer of that didn't know what a space opera is supposed to be it would be like uh someone writing a like a batman story and like the the whole point of the story is like uh we'll just use a oddball example like Batman needs to uh subdue Scarecrow. Mm-hmm. Which is, One of my j- favorite villains. By yeah, way. just a, an example. So and it like maybe it's it's a really complicated plot, and then suddenly in the middle of it. It, it it goes Batman's you know he's chasing a lead, and then it just it cuts to six hours later, like ten chapters of Robin trying to get a date. Mm-hmm. You know, poor it's poor writing. Yeah, it has and, to be has to be balanced and pacing. Right, and that's that's the way I equate Star Wars Episode Eight among many other movies that like you could like i don't care how goofy a script or a story can be if it's well written chances are i'll probably enjoy it but if it's not well written then i mean it it could be you know there there's reasons that uh stories like uh oh is it 12 angry men Mm-hmm. The the jury, the jury, uh, and the movie. kid with the switchblade. Right. That that that. There's a reason that that movie is held at such high esteem yeah. because it is a tightly written story that is fantastic. It's like it takes place in like one room and just it it can really hold your attention and yeah. I watched. I haven't seen the new version. I watched the black and white version. And I, I'm just going to point out that I am f- wholly against remakes. Uh, not so much of like long-running series like Batman mm-hmm. or um, uh, another one that I have no problems with remakes is King Kong. Yeah. I, I I can appreciate a remake if I can see what different things a new director might bring to it, but it almost never is as good as the original. I, one I, weird example is Psycho. Have you seen the remake of that? It was a, it was a know, shot for shot. Do you know shot. what? I was literally about to mention Hitchcock. Yeah. Hitchcock wrote he much, much, much later. But Psycho was like a shot for shot. If you played them side by side, mm-hmm. and I, at first I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. It's kind of like a, a film experiment. But then I'm like, 
But that just kind of took away any chance for us to see another interpretation of this amazing movie. Right. And and you also didn't – and it wasn't just shot for shot. It didn't have the texture of the original Hitchcock version. Right. And I'm sorry, but like Hitchcock, easily one of my favorite horror, suspense, noir. It's not really noir, but it is no it, it horror and suspense, mm-hmm. but I mean – of that time. And who was the kid who played uh the the um Andy Perkins? Believe so. Did he play and what was the name of the character, the the hotel person, the hotel guy? Norman Bates. Oh yeah, Norman Bates. Um Andy Perkins, if that's his name, he had a really I really appreciated him as Norman Bates because he seemed like a sympathetic character. He seemed like someone who was shy and awkward that you could uh, really trust. And was it Vince Vaughn who did the remake? He does a good job, but it's not quite as endearing. Who – so there's been three remakes of Psycho? I think two. But then there's a series called Bates. Was it, wasn't there a mid seventies remake? I don't know. Hmm. I'll have to look that up. But you know, it a topic for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I honestly feel we should probably do Batman Returns after this. <laughs> I maybe like skip like what do like a standalone novel and then go back to a novelization. So Okay. Yeah. No, I actually I would almost prefer that. Yeah. Because the novelizations since I'm I'm a film buff, I have this nasty habit of equating straight to the movie, mm-hmm. which, I mean, so did the writer, oddly. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a novelization, so he kind of had to. He's limited in what he can do. Exactly. And I would like to get some fresh new Batman stories. I, I want to see in, other interpretations of Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. And a lot of – I want to see some of the smaller Batman villains that I don't really necessarily know because – I think we've said it before, but out of the like the comic world, the Batman villain roster might be one of the most, not even just popular, but well-known villain rosters out there. I mean, right next to probably not even you know, Spider-Man's like I'm a comic reader and have been since like the 80s. Yeah, since I was really little, and so I know a lot of the Spider-Man villains, but the Batman villains. Everybody knows. Yeah. As Superman, I think people know Lex Luthor and that's about it. And Doomsday. Because oh, of the, the because Doomsday killed him. <laughs> I really don't delve in DC fanfic ever. <sighs> I like I say, when, when I say I'm a sci fi guy, mm-hmm. I'm a sci fi guy. Like I'm a, I'm I'm a, I'm a Heinlein fanatic, uh William Gibson, um Peter F. Hamilton. I can uh, Roger Zelazny. It's okay. I'm pull. I'm pulling you by the nostrils to get into reading DC books. So. No, no. It, well, it's it's not that I don't like DC. Like, um, I don't know if I've said this on here or not, but like when it comes to DC, um, okay, Superman bores me. I'm just gonna be right out about that one. Superman bores me. Um, I really like the Lantern cores. So like Green Lantern does it for me. I have been an avid Flash reader since forever. Flash alike. Uh, Green Lantern, I know absolutely nothing about. But not just Flash. The entire Speedster universe. So Max Mercury, Impulse, Jay Garrick, you know, all of that. I love, like, Jesse Quick. Like, the whole, like, little Speedster universe, I absolutely adore. Uh, I think I have almost every issue of Impulse. Mm. Like, the, the comic. Um, so I really enjoy those. 
Have you seen the trailers for Black Bur- or what's it called? Black Brightburn. It's like an evil Superman like kid straight to being found on an alien craft out in farmland. I have not, but I, I'm I'm interested. Yeah, it's I just I, like I, I have so much respect for the guys who can write Superman because he is so overpowered that you have to be clever to yeah. write that character. Well, I think uh, Kryptonite didn't show up until later because the r- creators realized that okay, he has to have a weakness because it's not interesting if he has this godlike power and nothing can touch him. There's no sense of danger for him, so. There's no. I mean, the majority of of writing that character is more like screwing with his head than with his body. Yeah, though I I do really like the newer Superman, um, Henry Cavill, Cavill, how you pronounce his name, and that kind of dark, slightly darker, more serious twist on Superman. I hope they bring him back. He was perfect. See, I think he. I I don't. I don't know what the DC t- movie universe is doing. If they were smart, they would just combine it with the uh, the CW TV yeah. universe. Yeah. Because the the Berlanti guys have that on lockdown. I mean, they're doing such a good job with it. The movie universe outside of um, Wonder Woman. And I haven't seen Aquaman yet, but apparently it's a fun popcorn it is, movie. It is a fun movie. I really like it. Um, and but, I enjoyed the Batman v Superman and Justice League as well. But I know I'm kind of in the minority there. Well... I have issues with the Batman v Superman movie and not because of the tone, although that was kind of blah. Um, my problem with that particular film is the fact that they combined way too much strong plot yeah. into such a short time. Though I've heard from a variety of sources that it's really vital to watch the uncut version, the director's cut. I've heard that too. And I have not done that yet, but I, I'm planning on doing that If you that get soon. a copy, bring it over because I want to watch it. We'll do. I feel like we should deep dive on the penguin at some point because, like, that just made, like, knowing that his, what, would be his great, great, great grandfather mm-hmm. or something like that. And then you go down the line to where the varying stories of how the penguin became the penguin and why he isn't like a, you know, Wayne family status. Like, yeah, because he's a, 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 a old family. Yeah, old, not old, but founding family right. of Gotham. I mean, there should be some prestige there. Yeah. I love Robin Lord Taylor's penguin in gotham he's cast perfectly i like that better than uh danny devito yeah. in batman returns when i did a little bit of digging into well i just cut, did a quick look because uh, remember the first time we we recorded together we talked about Wee's connection with batman like he's mentioned in the book mm-hmm. and he is also in gotham mm-hmm it's been years since I've seen the movie, but he was also in the next Batman movie, also playing Penguin's father. He was. I do remember that. Yeah, I, I did not remember that. He he has odd connections with Batman. Yes, and he looks like he's barely aged at all since then. And he's easily in his mid sixties. Yeah. Because uh, he was a con- he was uh, right around the same age bracket as Elvira. Elvira, who is a personal. 
love of mine. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I would, I, I definitely want it deep dive at some point on the penguin mm-hmm. because that, that kind of history, it just, it makes you wonder how, uh, uh, someone from family lineage like that goes completely left field. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not terribly surprised. Uh, at the time in Hollywood, um, keep in mind that this is obviously pre way pre Marvel cinematic universe. Uh, when a director got a hold of a story, uh, to jump away from, comic books for just a moment um stanley kubrick his version of the shining is a fantastic example of this when he got a hold of this you know the when he got the bid to make the shining um stephen king absolutely hated it still hates it and it's because uh stanley kubrick said he wrote the book now this is my interpretation for the movie right i don't so he didn't care you know, it was his interpretation of everything. That's why it is different than the book. And that's I actually the, thought it was a good interpretation too. I th- absolutely adore Kubrick. I would. Um, I wonder if that hotel is still in existence. It is uh, definitely still in existence. I would love. It's out in Colorado somewhere, and I mm-hmm. would love to go there. Uh, but uh, directors would do this with, especially with comic books. I mean, any of us who are are not just comic fans but fans uh, dare I use the term nerd culture and who have been in this for a long time most of our lives uh the especially the 80s and 90s when we were getting these production studios were trying to sweep up stuff that we would like your batmans your uh Individual sci-fi novels. Masters of the universe. Cartoons. Masters of the universe being one that was questionable at best. I wish they'd make a, uh, what was the uh, Cats one? Thundercats. Yeah, thank you. Um, God, my brain. Yeah. But uh, when a director would get a hold of these, especially if it was a director that really wanted to flex their creative muscle, and in this case it was Tim Burton, they did their interpretation of it. Um. Not all of them would write the script, thankfully, but when, once it hit, you know, the production stage. Yeah. And sometimes things get tweaked and pr- like once they get the camera set up, they're like, you know what? What would actually work better? Mm-hmm. So there's th- – I'm sure there'll be slight differences between the book here and the movie. Absolutely. But it like the the people who wrote these four films, sometimes they would just deviate so hard from the, the actual canon, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't fly very well anymore. Um, thankfully – I mean, not so, without the fans really calling them out on it. Thankfully, because of Marvel, because Marvel has realized that there are enough fans for this. Um, and to an extent, the DC universe is starting to learn this. I mean, look at the new Aquaman movie. He busts out the orange shirt and green pants. Yeah. I'm just saying. Uh, but Marvel kind of finally beat it into these corporate you know, these, these high up Hollywood people that you can put in the actual comic canon and, uh, it's still going to sell. Yeah. I'm kind of a little worried about Disney having control of all this now because we've lost Daredevil. We've lost, um, 
Luke Cage and Iron Fist, and I, I'm sure Jessica Jones and the Punisher will be on their way out. And they're, they were wonderful, wonderful interpretations. That wasn't Disney. It was Disney. No, that was that was that was Netflix canceling. Netflix canceled it, but because they were getting pressure from Disney. Um, I don't honestly. I, I'm wondering how this is going to shake out because Disney knows there's money in that. I'm yeah. Disney has been. Not to get off on a tangent, but Disney wants to start their own streaming service. Yeah. They're just utilizing Netflix till like maybe their contract right. is up and then they're going to have their own. Maybe they'll bring all those Marvel Netflix shows to that. Hopefully so. But will they keep it? Uh, like a lot of people worry about, is it going to be Disney-fied? Because the kind of going back to Star, War, Star, Star Wars, Rogue One was a good standalone movie. So Solo. Solo, I thought, I thought that was so formulaic and predictable. To be fair, um, it was filmed twice. Really? That's the reason they said it was it, it tanked, even though it made almost like a billion dollars. Yeah. And it was because the original director did something completely up from what I've heard was horrible and then went completely – they fired him and brought in Ron Howard. And Ron Howard had to pick up in the middle of this and refilm everything everything and i think almost rewrite the script yeah i mean it's an enjoyable like you said popcorn flick but uh, it, it wasn't as rich as i'd hoped i have little faith in star wars anymore and i'm going to leave it at that and leave it to the star wars podcasts out there to yeah. handle it I'm not a hater, and I'm one of these guys who i grew up loving like i i we i definitely grew up in the generation of you're either into Star Trek or you're into Star Wars. And Team both. <laughs> there is a there was a divide in the middle, and you know my answer after a while just became Babylon Five and Stargate. Yeah. <laughs> you know that was my answer after a while, but you know I did get caught up in the whole Star Wars thing because I loved those original three movies. Yeah, and and I think that's why people are critical of the movies because we all love them. We, there are babies and we want yeah. to see them do the best they can. But you're right. Rogue One is fantastic. And the 700 Club came on right after that. So you had to switch the channel to some, to a movie. <laughs> Did you see there's a picture going around? Uh, there's a car whose, um, gear shift is actually like a little, almost looks like a radio button. You go from like park to neutral and. Oh, that's cool. But someone says, how dangerous is this? As soon as Nickelback comes on, you suddenly find yourself parked in the middle of the highway. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god erp, erp, wrong button i anyway. adore that yeah i kind of laughed too hard i don't think i can do a betty boop voice but <laughs> i'm not sure i can remember what a betty boop voice boop, boop, be, boop, boop. oh yeah <laughs> um, it's been a while see <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i got choked up just doing that a little bit love that joker <laughs> and i found this quote of uh, superman is quoted as saying I'm not particularly fond of Gotham. It's like someone built a nightmare out of metal and stone. So. This is why we don't hang out in Metropolis there, uh, Mr. Clark Kent. Well, I'm like 90% British Isles, Scotch-Irish, so I burn under a 60-watt bulb, and Metropolis is just too sunny. Well, it would have to be, otherwise Superman couldn't Point. <laughs> do his thing. All right. Uh, I'm getting a little better about being able to talk for prolonged periods without my throat getting all scratchy. Mm, water is essential. If I'm sitting down to a really long episode mm -hmm. on, on my channel, I uh, I bust out 
water yeah. or tea. Most Usually it's something hot. Well, I think I was a little bit out of practice. I don't talk all that much. And the good thing about going to Deaf Night Out tonight is I won't have to say a word. It's just all sign language, which is kind of wonderful. Um, and I think when I started the podcast, I might have had a touch of a cold or something because it, it was a, a lot of coughing. Yeah. My glands were a little swollen. That was swole, dude. <laughs> have you ever had a gin and tonic? I have a fun story about gin and tonics. Because I'm going to say it's one of those drinks I always hear about in, in movies, but I, in books and movies, but I have never seen anyone order one. So This is the probably most ghetto version of a gin and tonic you'll ever hear. Nice. I was sitting around with two of my best friends, um, Scott and Jake, mm-hmm. and... This was probably 12 years ago. We were playing Super Nintendo. Uh, we were, we were doing a, a hard speed run of, uh, one of our favorite RPGs. And I'm not a drinker. Those two are drinkers. And they decided they wanted gin and tonics. And so, we made before the whole evening started. We made a. Why are uh, we cutting out here a little bit? Okay, go ahead. Before the whole evening started, before we we fry because that evening we actually fried the Super Nintendo. Oh. <laughs> uh, thankfully, it was my spare. So Super Nintendo and gin and tonic don't mix. Well, no, it was just because that Super Nintendo hadn't been used in a long, long time, and we it just fizzled. And suddenly, it's on an eighteen-hour marathon. <laughs> it was. I think we played for almost twelve hours solid. Nice. Um, but. We went to the, we went down to the liquor store and we got gin, vermouth, and what, I think there's a third thing that goes in there. Is that what olives go in? Or that's a martini? I don't know. I don't know drinks. I think we were, we made martinis and gin and tonics. So we got tonics and gin, but I believe gin and vermouth go in Mm -hmm. to martini. Well, either way, but it, like when you make a gin and tonic, you normally do small glasses. And my friends are insane, and we're doing like martinis in full size like lemonade glasses, an empty McDonald's sweet teacup. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was ghetto. Nice. <laughs> and uh, they did the same thing with gin and tonic, and then of course people were like later that evening passed out and getting ill and whatnot. Uh. And I'm over here completely sober and that's i've I've, i'm not a drinker i never have not much of one either and (laughs) so i like that's why i remember all of these stories but that's the the great gin and tonic story it's not all that exciting but super nintendo gin and tonics and then people passing out (laughs) while i'm trying to get through an rpg (laughs) it just feels like uh one of these days i want to at least try a gin and tonic just to see what all the fuss is about because it shows up in every it well it it was funny because my friend Jake absolutely loves gin straight. Mm-hmm. Like he's one of those guys that you catch him in college with like a fifth of gin, just drinking it straight from the, you know, in a brown paper bag and just drinking it straight. Yeah. I've never had gin. I've had a vodka. I've had rum. I'm not a big fan of rum. I'm fine with vodka. Um, that's about it. I, uh, wine. Is literally the only, like, I think I've had, like, maybe a taste of vodka. Mm -hmm. 
when I was like 14. I have it mixed with either in a, a margarita or I'm sorry, a daiquiri or orange juice. I, I, they're most liquors I've never even had. I have no inkling to try them. Yeah. I, the only thing I really do now is like once every six months or so, I'll grab, um, and it's hard to find. I, right now I can't find it any closer than Dayton, which is about, what, 90 minutes away from here, is the Recorderlig, uh, Swedish cider. It's pear cider, not apple cider. It's so good. Hard cider is definitely a weakness though. Yeah. Like I've never even gotten a buzz off of it, but I just like the taste. Yeah, of it. exactly. And it just, it, it, like you said, it doesn't really give you a buzz, but it just kind of just relaxed yet, relaxes you just a little. Yeah. Have I ever given it, had you try a recorder lick? Is this the same scream that I'm thinking of? Like kind of crazy? Yes. Okay. It is the one I'm thinking of. I remember, um, back in the late nineties there, I think it was the, um, Sunfire, some kind of new car and they had like a, an animation of the scream. And when it drove, the car drove by, it was driving through that landscape that was kind of swirling. And yeah. when it drove by, the the figure did that thing, and it was kind of cool. That's kind of neat. Yeah. So it makes me wonder. No, no, it doesn't make me wonder. Never mind. It was funny when I um when I was taking jujitsu, and this is kind of more of like a Japanese jujitsu, not Brazilian. So it's more. Uh, grappling and judo throws and things like that. But I was grappling with someone and his arm came around in front of my face and I almost bit him. <laughs> and I was like, wait, no, this is the mat. I'm, I'm not in danger. I'm not supposed to bite. But now I'm like, man, if I were in a scrap, I'm a dirty fighter if I need to be. 